Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is preached, what she has done for me, says Jesus, will be told and retold in remembrance of her. Vicki and I spent most of this past week in Connecticut doing interviews with candidates for ordained ministry. It's a grueling process, more so for them than for us, of course. It's a series of nine interviews over two days, sprinkled with time of worship and prayer and time of us just checking them out and looking at them when they're not noticing that we're looking at them. I'm not very good at this process, I want to tell you. I am generally floored by the way God calls people into ministry and floored by the gifts that different people bring into their ministry. So I'm not very discerning. I like everybody. (laughs) I can almost always see ways that any given candidate would be better at this ministry thing (laughs) than I am. If it sounds like I'm trying to be humble, I'm not. (laughs) One of the questions that we ask each candidate is this. How do you love your God? How do you love your God? Followed by, how do you love yourself? The questions, of course, are related. Loving God always involves coming to understand the depth and intensity and fierce passion with which God loves you and you, and you, and you, and me. And if God loves us that way, each of us that way, that intensely, that passionately, how can we fail to love ourselves? Well, the answers we get from this question are always interesting. Some more interesting than others. Some are exactly what you'd expect people to say. I love God through prayer, said one. I love God through the means of grace, through acts of mercy and acts of devotion. I love God through feeding hungry people. I love God through praise, through worship, through singing hymns like the one we sang a moment ago, What wondrous love is this, O my soul. We love God through partaking of the sacraments of God. One person answered in this way, She said, when I'm falling in love with somebody, I want to spend time with them. I want to spend a lot of time with them. No, she said, I want to spend a lot of time with them. And with God, she said, it's the same thing. The more time I spend with God, the more I'm falling in love with God. And the more in love with God I feel, the more time I want to spend with God. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, knew something about that. While he was riding this wave of faith and passion that became the Methodist movement, he was asked to come up with some rules, some general rules for belonging to the movement. So he said, great, I can come up with some rules. Here are three. Do no harm. Do good. Attend on the ordinances of God. Now, doing no harm, that's simple. It's the least we can expect of each other. It's a rule we violate all the time, but it's a rule we can be clear about. It's clear. And, and doing good, 
doesn't require that much explanation either. It doesn't require any translation. Do good. Whatever you're doing, make sure you're doing good. But that third rule, attend on the ordinances of God, that needs a little translation. So in our current times, we better and more commonly understand it as stay in love with God. And so we teach, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. Stay in love involves falling in love. And falling in love leads to staying in love. Wesley laid out a number of ways to stay in love with God, such as showing up at worship, which you guys have done very well this morning. Such as paying attention to the scriptures, which you may have done also, perhaps, very well. It involves thinking about the things that the scriptures teach us. It involves spending time in prayer, spending some serious time in some serious prayer. It involves receiving grace through the sacraments of God, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism. Now, on the ride home from our time in Connecticut with these amazing candidates for ministry, Vicki and I got into this big discussion of baptism. In case you're wondering what nerdy ministers like us talk about when we're off on our own, now you know. Vicki and I are both cradle Methodists, baptized as babies. Baptized as babies? Baptized as babies. And we believe in infant baptism. We believe in infant baptism. Really, we do. We believe that it happens, and we know that God's amazing grace is showered on that little person, that young life, in the process of baptism. We know that. But in the course of our conversation, we both admitted quietly that we're also fans of believer's baptism, of people of whatever age saying to themselves and saying to God, I want to leave my old life behind. I want to pursue a new life. I want to die to myself. I want to be reborn in Christ. That's a powerful thing. Now, if you can do that in a river or a lake or a bay or an ocean, plunging the person under the surface of the water, so much the better. That's the way John the Baptist did it for Jesus, after all. Die to self as you go under. Be reborn to the ways of life as you come to the surface and draw in the spirit in that precious breath. Okay, well, that's kind of heavy. (laughs) Usually we think of baptism as time to gather, you know, the grandparents and the godparents and the aunts and uncles together, which is great. And as I say, baptism as a means of grace works no matter how and when we do it. But I was reminded of that dunking kind of baptism this week during interviews with two of our ministry candidates. They told strangely similar stories about their call into ministry, which didn't have to do with their baptism, but it had to do with their coming to understand the preciousness of life and the preciousness of the love of God. And there are stories in each case that involved drowning. One candidate We'll call him Sam, because that's his name. He said that when he was younger, he was swimming with some friends, and he found himself over his head with a sprain of some sort in his arm, and he couldn't keep his head above water. 
as he sank, unable to save himself, he resigned himself to die, and he passed out. And then he was grabbed by what he experienced as the arm of God, pulling him up and out of the water. What Sam claims to this day was the arm of God. The next candidate we met with, the very next interview we did, the candidate told us about a kayak accident where he turned over. Anybody been in a kayak? Some of you guys do this way too much. Yeah. Turned over in his kayak, couldn't turn himself back over, slipped out of the kayak, but couldn't get to the surface. And he looked up to the surface, and he could see the sun shining through the surface of the water, and he thought, I'm ready to die. It's okay. And just then his foot struck a rock, and that striking the rock just both jarred him, and it gave him something to push up against. And he pushed up and out of the water, to breaking the surface. I tell you these stories of death and life, these stories of death and rebirth, of resurrection, to remind us and help us understand what baptism is about, however you do it, whenever you do it. It's about dying to the ways of death and living into ways that bring life. It's about dying to the ways of death and bringing about things that lead to life. But that process of dying, that process of rebirth, isn't a once-for-all recurrence like death is, like um, baptism is, sorry. Death is a once-for-all occurrence, I suppose. Not a once-for-all occurrence like baptism is for us. But it's an ongoing part of what it means to be serious about the Christian faith. It's an ongoing understanding of what it means to die to self and live into life. That's the way we fall in love with God and stay in love with God. Today we read two pieces of scripture, very different pieces of scripture. Corinne read from the Song of Solomon, and that's a strange book to find in the middle of the Bible. It, it generally sleeps there unnoticed and undiscovered, except by bored 12-year-olds thumbing through the Bible in the middle of somebody's sermon. It's love poetry, rather descriptive love poetry. But it's in Scripture because, like that ordination candidate told us, there really is a close correlation between what it means to fall in love with another person and what it means to fall in love with God. So that when King Solomon, or whoever wrote those poems, writes, Love is strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fiery, f- fire. That says something about the fierce and fiery passion with which God loves us and the fierce and fiery passion that can be part of our love for God as well. Of course, there are different ways of loving God. Jesus, after all, tells us, how do you expect to love God whom you've never seen when you don't love your neighbor or your sister or your co-worker or that person who lives down the hall who's always right in front of your face? How can you love God? if you can't love people. Speaking of that, there are different ways in Scripture of loving Jesus, different ways people discover to love Jesus, 
different ways of returning the fierce and wondrous love that Jesus has for the people he runs into, returning that love to Jesus, which brings us at long last to today's gospel lesson from the Gospel of Mark. It's a story of conflict, and that's true of most of Mark's gospel, but it's also a story about how to love Jesus and therefore how to love God. The unnamed woman in our story comes to Jesus with one way of loving him. And the disciples approach Jesus with a different way of loving Jesus. And they're both potentially ways of showing that love. But the story itself isn't framed in love. I want to be honest about that. It's framed in hate and fear and threat and danger. It's not framed by life. It's framed by death. And so if you read the whole book of Mark, if you read that whole chapter of Mark, you'll see that as our Bible studiers were able to see last Sunday after church, you see that this story is in the context of things that happened before and things that happened after. The verse before says the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The verse after this story says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples of Jesus, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. It's a story of life and love, but it's surrounded by death and hate. So in this context of death and danger, this loving, passionate act of an unnamed woman, an unnamed disciple of Jesus, is the more remarkable. She brings this alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she breaks open the jar and she anoints Jesus on his head with this costly ointment. How costly was this ointment, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it was worth 300 denarii. Yeah. Okay, so a denarius was the wage given to a worker for a full day's work. So 300 denarii, if you take off for Shabbat, is about a year's worth of working. That's pretty expensive stuff. All right. That prompts the other disciples to offer a different way of loving Jesus, as you might have noticed. You could have sold the ointment and fed people with it, they say. And their method isn't wrong. That's another way to love Jesus. And he tells us that when he tells Simon Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. The method isn't wrong. It's the timing that's off. Because this woman, this disciple is helping Jesus get ready for a death that he knows is coming, a death that will follow these events by just a few days. And only through that death will Jesus be born into life. Only through that death will the depth of Jesus' wondrous love for us be finally understood. Only through that death will we understand the lengths that Jesus will go to to love our souls into life. And only through that death can we be reborn to life that matters. Only through that death can we finally come to know the fierce, passionate love, the fiery passion of the love that God has for us 
and the love that we can each have for our God. Fall in love with God and stay in love with God. Let's pray. Living God, we long to see you lifted up in your glory, to see you there in holy beauty. O Lord, almighty God, living Christ, we love you.